Hey, the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails, and with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers and with available features like the panoramic moonroof. You can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. Visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. If you're like me, it's now the end of the day, and you say, "Uh uh-oh, what are we going to have for dinner? Well, here's the solution. Eating better is easy with Factors Delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You're going to have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Flexible for your schedule, get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries at any time. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive then take out and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. What are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. Head to factormeals.com slash smirconish50 and use code smirconish50 because you'll get 50% off. That's code smirconish50 at factormeals.com slash smirconish50. Get your 50% off. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to Book Club with Michael Smirkanish. Hi, it's Michael Smirkanish. As a Sirius XM and CNN host, I'm known for speaking, but frankly, I read for a living. I need to know what to say, and so I consume over two dozen newspapers and websites daily. I read opposing views and studies and court cases and orders and op-eds just so I can discuss current events on radio and television. But my favorite reading? Books. Old school. And my favorite interviews? are with book authors. Book Club with Michael Smirconish is now in session. Every morning in SEAL training, my instructors, who at the time were all Vietnam veterans, would show up in my barracks room, and the first thing they'd do was inspect my bed. If you did it right, the corners would be square, the covers would be pulled tight, the pillow centered just under the headboard, and the extra blanket folded neatly at the foot of the rack. It was a simple task mundane at best, but every morning we were required to make our bed to perfection. It seemed a little ridiculous at the time, particularly in light of the fact that we were aspiring to be real warriors, tough, battle-hardened SEALs. But the wisdom of this simple act has been proven to me many times over. If you make your bed every morning, you will have accomplished the first task of the day. It will give you a small sense of pride. And it will encourage you to do another task, and another, and another. And by the end of the day, that one task completed will have turned into many tasks completed. Making your bed will also reinforce the fact 
that the little things in life matter. If you can't do the little things right, you'll never be able to do the big things right. And if by chance you have a miserable day, you will come home to a bed that is made, <laughs> that you made. And a made bed gives you encouragement that tomorrow will be better. So if you want to change the world, start off by making your bed. Those words are from a commencement address delivered May 17, 2014 at the University of Texas at Austin by my next guest, Admiral William H. McRaven, now retired from the United States Navy, served with great distinction. In his 37 years as a Navy SEAL, he commanded at every level. As a four-star admiral, his final assignment was as commander of all U.S. Special Operations Forces, and today he's the chancellor of the University of Texas system. He's just published a book titled appropriately, Make Your Bed, Little Things That Can Change Your Life and Maybe the World. Admiral, what a privilege to have you on my program. Oh, thanks, Michael. Good to be here. Did you have any idea of the viral moment you were about to create when you delivered those words? Yeah, absolutely not. Uh, you know, I was just happy to get through the commencement address. Uh, so I, I was pleased to find out very soon thereafter that uh, the, the students and the parents were, were uh, appreciative of the remarks, and, and it was starting to go viral pretty quick. Were you a bed maker even before your Navy SEAL training? You know, I was, but uh, but probably not as uh, as a careful bed maker as uh, as I became after SEAL training. My mother was a uh, as an elementary school teacher out of uh, Texas, and con- contrary to what a lot of people think, because my father was a military officer, it was my mother who uh, encouraged me to make my bed every morning. Uh, but when I got to uh, SEAL training, they really re- reemphasized the fact of why it was so important to do that. I'm wondering how far we can take this in terms of what can you determine about a person who does not make their bed? Because I, I, I was impressed with your anecdote about Saddam Hussein and his habits. What were they in this regard? <laughs> yeah, I tell people that just because you don't make your bed doesn't make you Saddam Hussein. Um, so the, the story uh, that I, I put in the book, uh, when, when we captured Saddam Hussein uh, back in December of '03, uh, I held him for about uh, 30 days. We kept him uh, in, uh, in confinement for 30 days before we turned him over to the military police. And every day I would go in to check on him. We had a, a, a ranger guard and we had a medic that would, uh, would be in the room with him 24-7. But I found it somewhat humorous and that every day that I would go in, he would be on his cot and we gave him sheets and a pillow and things to kind of make the cot up well. And yet he never made his bed. The sheets were always kind of crumpled at the, the base of the cot and he would sit on it, uh, uncaring whether or not that cot was made and, and looking clean and crisp. And uh, so it was a small reflection, I think, into the window of Saddam Hussein. But having said that, as I said, just because you don't make your bed doesn't make you bad. Hey, Admiral, the, the book is like the commencement address predicated on 10 lessons that you learned from Navy SEAL training. And as coincidence would have it, just at the end of last week, I found myself speaking in San Diego at the Hotel Del Coronado, and I had just read your book in anticipation of this conversation. And I saw a number of, I presume they are wannabe SEALs training on the beach, and I was thinking to myself, how hard must it have been for you and for the many others to go through that training 
and look at that four or five star legendary hotel and know that there are people sitting around the pool and sipping cocktail. I mean, is that part of the the pressure? Because look, there's that hotel where everybody is luxuriating and we are out here going through the most rigorous physical exercises imaginable. Well, a lot of the instru- a lot of the instructors were a little sadistic, so they did in fact love to run you by the Hotel Del Coronado, and they would frequently point out the fact that uh, there were people sitting by the pool and having cocktails while you were out there running in the soft sand or in the surf zone. Uh, so this was part of a little bit of the uh, the mental harassment of you, if you will, of of SEAL training. The instructors, when I went through, at least back in the 70s, they were all Vietnam veterans. And let me tell you, they wanted you to quit because they wanted only the very best to make it through SEAL training. And, uh, and anything they could do, either physically or mentally, to throw you off your game, they would. So every day as we would run up and down the beach, a number of the instructors would point out the fact that, look, here's the, here's the vaulted uh, Hotel Del Coronado, and it's easy, guys. All you got to do is quit, and you could go sit by the pool and, and have cocktails. So you bet uh, that was just part of the... Uh, Part of the kind of good-natured harassment that went on during training. And, of course, your ticket to get there would be to ring the bell not once, not twice, but three times, correct? Correct. Uh, so there was a brass bell that was in the what we refer to as the grinder or the compound inside the basic shield training camp. Uh, and in order to quit, all you have to do is ring that bell three times. You ring the bell, you take your helmet off, you put it down, and that's it. You are out of there, no questions asked. Um, and at one point in time, as I recall... One of the classes gave the the seal the, the instructors a mobile bell, so they could out, actually mount it on the back of the pickup truck that they would drive along with the uh, with the trainees. Unfortunately, they found out very quickly that when that bell was in sight, a lot more people quit. Uh, so it got to the point where uh, where having having the bell go with you everywhere was not good for any sort of seal retention. If a guy rang it once or twice, was the third time a certainty, or were there instances where somebody would ring it once and have a change of heart? You know, I think there were times when, uh, I can't say whether it was once or twice, but you could hear the bell when you were in and around the compound area. It's a brass bell, and it resonates uh, pretty pretty loudly. Uh, but there were times where you would hear one ring, and I think all of a sudden the trainee would say, do I really want to do this? And And after the one ring... You never heard a second or a third ring, and that was fine. As long as you didn't ring the bell three times, you could stay in training. So I do think that the ringing the bell once or twice, you know, gave them an appreciation for, hey, I don't want to quit. Let me get back with the class. And some some uh, students, in fact, did that. Hey, Admiral, in the book Make Your Bed, you talk about an encounter with Tommy Norris. I had the privilege not only of meeting Tommy Norris, but at, uh, meeting Mike Thornton as well at, a, at an MOH fundraiser in which I participated. But it speaks to something that you write about, which is by sight. You really can't determine who's got the makings. There are a bunch of studs who go down there to Coronado who don't necessarily make it. No, you couldn't be more right. And and, uh, for the listeners, Tommy Norris is a Medal of Honor recipient, uh, but a very uh, kind of of small frame and and not somebody you would think uh, would have gone on to be a Medal of Honor recipient. But this is true in all of SEAL training. Uh, It is what you realize very quickly I talk about the Munchkin crew in the book and in the speech. And the Munchkin crew from the old Wizard of Oz, remember my generation, remember the Wizard of Oz. Years later, they were called the Smurfs because the younger generation had the Smurfs. But the Munchkin crew were the little guys. We we were always uh, assigned.
airplane boat crews, and I was with the big guys. I'm about six foot two. And then the little guys, which were about, you know, five, five to five, six, were in the Munchkin crew. But the fact of the matter is, just because they were little, you found out very quickly that had nothing to do with their heart. That had nothing to do with whether or not they were going to make it through training. You really couldn't tell whether or not somebody was going to be successful by the looks of them. I mean, we had guys that uh, if you lined them up right up front, you would say, well, he's obviously going to make it through training. And he'd be the first guy to drop out. And then the little guy who was uh, skinny and scrawny uh, would be the guy that made it through and had a, a great SEAL career. So never judge somebody by their by their size or their color, uh, you know, only judging by the, the size of their heart. In the book, you talk about one of the more uh, uh, rigorous aspects of the training that occurs during Hell Week when you go to what are called the mud flats between San Diego and Mexico. Do, do you mind giving the short version of the singing story that you tell in the book? I promise I won't give it all away. <laughs> sure. Well, as you point out, uh, on Wednesday of Hell Week, uh, they send the class down to the mud flats, and it is a a slough, if you will. It's about three to four feet thick of mud. And, uh, and the point is, again, they're trying, the instructors are trying to get the trainees to quit. They're trying to find out who's tough. So the entire class gets thrown in the mud pits, and you sit down. And when you do that, you're, you are literally kind of up to your neck in mud. And after you've been out there for a number of hours, this is nighttime, the wind is howling off the beach, uh, you are in this very cold, wet mud, you're freezing, guys are shaking. And at one point in time, while we were going through Hell Week, an instructor came up to the edge of the mud flats, and, and a little bit like your discussion of the Hotel Dell earlier, a number of the other instructors were sitting around a fire, they were having a cup of coffee, they were relaxing, and the instructor came up to the trainees and he said, look, y'all can all get out of the mud flats. Everybody can get out, you can come sit by the fire, get warm, have a cup of coffee, but all I need is for five guys to quit. If just five guys will quit, then you can get out of the mud. And, boy, there were guys who were ready to quit. But all of a sudden, one of the students started singing. And the instructor started yelling at him and said, we didn't tell you you could sing. Stop singing. But he started singing. And then another guy started singing. And then another and another. And before long, the entire class was singing, you know, to, to make sure that we could stay together as a class. And, of course, the instructors were yelling at us threatening that we would stay in the mud for the rest of the night. But i got to tell you, even in the dark of the night, I could see the instructors smile a little bit because they realized that this one student who was up to his neck in mud had kind of given the rest of us hope. If he could sing while he was up to his neck in mud, then we could sing as well. We could challenge the instructors. We stayed together as a class, and, uh, and that class made it through the rest of Hell Week. A final question about your book, Make Your Bed. In your SEAL training class, 150 went in, 33 came out. What happens to the other 117? Because there are a lot of good men, right? Very capable individuals, just just didn't have what it took to be a SEAL. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the, the guys went on to stay in the Navy. So the Navy just reassigns them. So they, they went on, many of them went on to be, you know, great sailors, uh, and I'm sure had, had long careers. Uh, to your point, they just weren't cut out to be SEALs, and, uh, and that's, that's nothing against them. Not everybody is cut out to be a SEAL. Um, but, but I had a fellow I met many, many years later. He was a Navy captain who had received two silver stars for actions in Vietnam. And I remember him talking to me one day, and he had tried to go through SEAL train, training and hadn't made it. And, and even though he was a two-silver-star recipient— he regretted the fact that he didn't make it through SEAL training. I, I tried to assure him 
that, sir, because he was senior to me, I said, sir, you have done your duty for the United States Navy. You don't have to worry about the fact that you didn't make it through SEAL training. <laughs> but there was still a part of him that, uh, that regretted the fact that he didn't make it through. Admiral, will you indulge me with one final bin Laden-related question that's on the light side? Sure, fire away. So I've read the story, but I want to hear it from you, that the president, President Obama, he wants confirmation. And in order to provide him confirmation, you don't yet have the DNA, but you're thinking to yourself, there's a measurement that can be taken that would lend credence to the view that we really did get bin Laden. What happened? Well, of course, the the remains of bin Laden had come into the hangar, which was uh, very near the uh, my little command post in Afghanistan. And the president asked me, can you confirm it's bin Laden? I told him no. I had to go in and kind of uh, look at the body. So as the remains came in, I unzipped the, uh, the body bag. I, I pulled the remains of bin Laden, bin Laden out of the body. But I'm a three-star admiral, and I'm, I'm kind of kneeling down, checking the remains out. We're looking at the facial features, and it's, it's pretty clearly bin Laden. But I knew bin Laden was about six foot four, so we, the, the remains were, were on the, the floor of the hangar. And there was a young seal standing nearby, and he looked to be about my height. And I said, hey, son, how tall are you? And he looked at me, and he said, well, sir, I'm six foot two. I said, yeah, good, come here. I need you to lie down here. And he, and he said, what? I said, I need you to lie down here. And, of course, it clicked with him why he was lying down. So he, he laid down next to the remains. And, of course, the remains were a couple inches uh, longer than the, the six foot two seal. So I went back to my little command center, and I reported back into the president. I said, well, Mr. President, you know, we need DNA. Um, I said, but, uh, you know, the, the face looks good. And, oh, by the way, uh, you know, I had a, a young seal lie next to the remains, and, uh, and the remains were a couple inches uh, longer. And there was a little pause on the other end of the video teleconference. I was videoing with the president. And, and a little smile came across his face, and he said, okay, Bill, let me get this straight. We had $60 million for a helicopter, which, of course, we lost on the mission. But we didn't have $10 for a tape measure. And it was one of those great light moments uh, at the end of a very long and, and tough night uh, that was just, uh, you know, kind of perfect comedic timing for the president. Well, two days later, when I got uh, back to the United States, I got called over to the Oval Office, and the president very graciously presented me with a plaque. And on the plaque was a tape measure that said, if we have $60 million for a helicopter, I hope we can find $10 for a tape measure. Next time, take the tape measure. I hope that's in your office as chancellor of the University of Texas system, because I have to believe that would be a prized memento. It is a prized memento, and it is at my house. Uh, but I have uh, taken the opportunity to, to show it to a number of folks, and it is one of the great mementos I have. Thank you so much for getting Bin Laden. Thank you for your service and for writing this great book, Make Your Bed. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much, Michael. Thank you, Admiral. Yeah, my privilege. To the class of 2014, you are moments away from graduating, moments away from beginning your journey through life, moments away from starting to change the world for the better. It will not be easy. But you are the class of 2014, the class that can affect the lives of 800 million people in the next century. Start each day with a task completed. Find someone to help you through life. Respect everyone. Know that life is not fair and that you will fail often. But if you take some risks, step up when the times are the toughest, face down the bullies, lift up the downtrodden, and never, ever give up. If you do these things, the next generation 
and the generations that follow will live in a world far better than the one we have today. And what started here will indeed have changed the world for the better. Thank you very much. Hook em horns. That is Admiral William H. McRaven. Uh, this is I'm not this sure is, I've ever been more nervous calling someone. <laughs> this is a, uh, a, 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 a a word choice that gets tossed around sometimes too frequently, and it diminishes it. He's a great American. Whew. He is a great American. Book Club with Michael Smirconish. New episodes drop Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen to the Michael Smirconish program weekdays on Sirius XM's POTUS Channel 124 and anytime on the SXM app. Connect with Michael on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and at Smirconish.com. Spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Super Light Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Super Light Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So what can you do in a Super Light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com. Code SUPER24.